Welcome to our podcast, where everyone here at NADATA gets to sound off on the latest things happening in the AI and machine learning space, talk about new ways to manage data, and or talk about all the geeky things we love to hate, or is it hate to love? I'm Steve Aberly, your host who moonlights as the chief of products here for NADATA. Be sure to stick around until the end of the podcast, where I always ask our guests' opinion on how close we really are to the AI-induced robot apocalypse. You're listening to Anadata's podcast, Should I Say Thank You to Siri? Ask and you shall receive. So by popular demand, I'm sitting down with Oscar Wood, CEO of Anadata, to talk about many different things, including hidden data workforces, democratizing AI across a business, and how the world of ETL is changing. But since I've known Oscar for more than 10 years, we take a walk down memory lane first and talk a little bit about data tactics. Data Tactics was originally incorporated October 2006 or 2005. And then I worked as just me with the company uh, up until April 2006. And April 2006 is when I had my first official employee and uh, an offer official offer letter how how official were things there uh, day one at uh, I, handshakes no 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 <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty official because you know we were supporting uh things in theater so you know not only did i have to have like i9s official offer letters and stuff i also had to have other odd things like DBA insurance, oh, which, wow. which which was uh, insurance for you know people being in theater. And no I have no idea what that is. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's basically insurance for if something happens overseas that they can bring you back home and uh-huh. do stuff. And then and then actually they took the extra step of having a Lloyd's of London insurance policy actually for every employee that we had that went overseas. Now that, and now that the I first know what one. that is. Yeah. yeah. Not cheap. Yeah, no, no. But you know, it's all about the people. The conversation quickly takes a turn to something a bit more serious. I ask him why after experiencing a great deal of success with data tactics and all the things that come with that success, sleepless nights, massive amounts of stress. Why create N data? What was left unfinished? So, you know, it was kind of funny, you know, when you're when you're in the midst of doing all of that stuff, you know, working and 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 being in the midst of running the company the day to day and going through the acquisition and stuff like that. You know, you you never pull your head out of the sand. It's hard to mm. see and have some perspective as to what's happened. And there was some, you know, unfinished business, I guess, uh, that I had after after Data Tactics and a lot of lessons learned. So Inundata is the culmination of the things that I always wanted to do with Data Tactics, but doing them far more efficiently and at a scale that was more reasonable so starting from scratch so you know developing software but the right kind of software and and you know spinning up the uh, services business but not in duress or in stress but just in just in a very efficient kind of way methodical methodical that's right methodical just made more sense so oscar walks me through his thought process of ideating encompass where he saw the gaps and who specifically we're trying to enable. 
Yeah, so it's kind of it's it's funny. I started off my career as a data an or Oracle database administrator. Oh, a DBA. Yeah, I was a DBA and a, uh, a technical CEO. Yeah, technical CEO. I don't. Dangerous. Although our CTO doesn't think so. <laughs> he, he doesn't. He doesn't give me the root passwords. Anything. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, that's right. But but uh, yeah, I started off as a database administrator, and it was the one of the interesting aspects of my job is I was consistently going back and forth between business analysts and people who were supplying the data and trying to basically facilitate an understanding on both sides. The right. providers of the data needed to be able to provide it in a certain way so that I could reposit it in the database and then present it to an analyst in a way that made sense for them to consume it. But, you know, it wasn't just a simple handoff. It was a lot of back and forth consistently. Mother day. may I. Yeah. Expensive. Yeah. Time consuming. And, and, you know, in the, in the, in, you know, I wasn't, we were working in the government, right? So mm -hmm. the mission wasn't to make money or save money. The mission was to save lives. So right. it was very important that I got it right. And as we, and that, that paradigm has kind of, it's still around. It's still, but just a little different. Right. And I think what's happened is um, with, with all the advance in technology and, you know, certainly more storage and, and cheaper compute and more data and, you know, and, and coming in at a faster velocity, you know, whatever the three V's are, that gap is still there. Mm -hmm. So Encompass was really designed to really close the gap or bridge or span that chasm between the data provider and the analyst. Oscar's talked to me before about this assumption that there's a hidden data workforce, a group of people in any given organization whether they're business analysts, marketing professionals, low-level, all the way to C-suite. Technology for this group of people is quickly being democratized. So we talk here about the hidden data workforce and what they need to validate their mental models. I would say so, single pane of glass without having to you know, physically go from, from one location to another, you know, trying to figure out where your data silos are or tracking down certain people or, you know, these supposed knowledge managers where mm -hmm. that, that it really don't exist. You know, I spent the first basically 20 years of my career answering the same question every day, which was, yeah, we have this database, but what's in it? You know, interesting. And then you and then when you answer the question as a what's in it, then it's the second question is, well, yeah, but how do I use it? So and it right. do, and it doesn't matter what system it, it is, and they know? want so badly that's to right. use the data. That's right. That's yeah. right. You know, and it could be something that people are already using systems that they paid for, but they, you know, but a lot of these systems aren't necessarily built for the everyday user in mind. There's a lot of emphasis put on reporting and making these pretty pictures and whatnot, but. But that that's the end result. There's a yeah. whole missing piece in the middle. Yeah, I think, you know, if you take if you take uh, data engineering and you look at it as a as a spectrum of skills, you know, at one end of the spectrum, you know, you you have your your basic data entry folks, you know, the people who are typing, putting data in Excel spreadsheets and then at the opposite end 
of the spectrum, you have the the mythical, ethereal data scientists or, you know, artificial intelligence engineers. But there's a lot. And in the middle between all those things, there's like DBAs, right? right. But, but you know, there's a lot of work that happens in between all of those, all of that spectrum. And it's not just, you know, it's not just one, one particular person. Um, from a from a data engineering perspective, that's managing all of that data. But the one thing that is consistent is the for, for across that spectrum of data engineering, everyone seeks answers from the subject matter expert on that data to say, "Is what I'm doing right?" Right. right? And in this particular case you know, it that that person is like the program manager or the project controller or the systems administrator or the program administrator or, you know, in the finance world, it could be, you know, the person who's doing APAR every single day. But effectively, there is someone who is consistently looking at this data over and over every single day doing either aggregative reporting or roll-up reporting to send up the chain of command to say, hey, here's my reports, I'm sending them up. But they know the data more and better than who they're actually sending it to because they see all of it and they're typically the people who are filtering it down. And um, the, it, it, But what what's lacking is is the ability for them to actually understand what it is that they're looking at. They have a lot of intuitive insight into the data that they see and look at every day because because that's their job, you know, you know, the person who's sitting there doing their aggregate reporting be like, you know, I've been looking at this for the last 3 weeks, I've been doing this every day. This seems like there's a little trend here, but eh, you know, whatever. And rather than come up with that insight and just generically report it up because you know someone's going to say, "Well, what's giving you this insight other than you other than other you see other than a mental model?" Right. There needed to be there needs to be some kind of mechanism or 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 software that enables them to put either mathematics or or science behind what they intuitively already know. And that's like what that. Encompass that's what Encompass does. I ask Oscar, is the end goal to democratize AI and those insights across an organization, machine learning for the masses, or maybe automating some of the difficult data management workflow tasks associated with assembling data for AI and ML? Yeah, I I think, you know, that's it's a pretty big certainly a pretty big topic, but ultimately ultimately, yes. Right. Because in a in a scenario under current under the current paradigm of of artificial intelligence and machine learning, it requires pretty large, sophisticated training sets. You know, they haven't necessarily gone right. exclusively to mathematical driven models to make these decisions. You know, they're, they're getting there, but still a long way, long way away. So. You know, the folks who would typically be providing these large data sets for these training sets, right? For the supervised machine learning. For the supervised machine learning, you know, again, those goes back to those exact same people that I just described before, your program controllers, your administrators, the folks who are seeing that data every single day. So once again, 
you know, being able to automate a little bit of that intuitive insight that we right. talked about before, giving them their training sets, it's a it's a it's a really intelligent thing to do. Not not only is it not only well, maybe intelligent isn't the right word, but it's certainly from a business efficiency perspective great for your organization to do, but it also really does uh, breed a lot of collaborative and knowledge transfer inside the organization, right? So it's like, hey, I have this insight, I have this intuition, the machine has proven this out over and over again using these models that I'm able to provide. Now, now the next time that the you know, program director or the senior VP of strategy wants to know why we've taken a direction in the company, you know, now it's, oh, well, you know, the folks down at the at the level of doing the stuff day to day has proven out this information. They've sent the training sets as part of our collaborative data science insight program into the machine learning algorithms. And this thing has been and, and now what it's spinning out is vetted. So it's not just right. not just information for the sake of giving information, but it's proven up and down the chain, which is really what any executive decision maker wants to make sure of and understand and know to be confident in, in moving whatever direction, organizational direction that has been given to them. And there's data everywhere in an organization, right? Most folks think that, you know, it's the stuff that, that you know, the data that we've paid for or the data that, you know, has that's generated in our timesheets or our financials or whatever have you. But, sure. um, you know, there's data all throughout an organization. You know, John may have a whole string of spreadsheets or Word documents or things that he's created just to enable his job efficiency that he's done done himself. But it's chock full of data that can be analyzed. You know, and that happens up and down a department, uh, a department, and it happens across multiple platitudes of an organization. So, understanding that data is more than just the stuff that you can that you've paid for or that you think is just being automatically generated right. is is really if you're going to take advantage of a you know the the data of a true data environment, you have to start and understand there. We dive deeper into what it takes to assemble data for AI and ML. Whose job is that? What needs to happen? How do we use software to make it a team effort? Project controllers, business analysts, data scientists, do all these people need to work together? Data scientists will spend 80% of their effort cleaning up- Way too much. And munging around data just to get it ready to go through some permutation of an algorithm. Right. Right. So in some numerical column on row two million five hundred fifty six, someone accidentally put the character A. That's right. That they're not really qualified to even say, oh, that shouldn't be, you know, character A. Like right. what you see a lot of times, actually, in really interesting cyber examples is, you know, folks will dump like uh, port scans off firewalls or IP addresses off firewalls and they'll just automatically dump all of the IP addresses that are the same. Oh, well, it's only 192.168.1.1. .1. Clearly that can't mean anything, so we're going to get rid of that and that has eliminated 60% of our data. <laughs> you know, and, and and certainly the picture at the end is going to be much the same. But the problem with it is is you know, 
the, 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 it's the, the analyst or in this particular case, you know, perhaps even the systems administrator or whoever's working with that data every day. They're the people who are most qualified to do the cleanup. Right. In a data science exercise, it's always back and forth between the subject matter expert and the data scientist. It always involves with what's your customers need? How do they get that right? Does it make right. sense? And the does it make sense? It doesn't come from, it doesn't come from the top line executive. It comes from the person who's doing the cleanup, who is the person who's looking at that data every day. So if you give the subject matter expert the ability to clean up the data to make it relevant to begin to answer some of those questions, then you've you've increased business efficiency, certainly with the going back and forth, but you've also enabled a lot of collaborative communication. Yeah. Too, you know, at, at, at a way that you wouldn't necessarily expect. You would never normally expect your, you know, highly paid data science consultant to be sitting down talking to your project controller. But at the end of the day, your data scientist isn't going to have the same understanding and meaning. It's just what's required. That's sometimes. right. Yeah. That's right. So why not foster a better collaborative environment and empower your own organization before you you know, empower an outsider that makes sense. There's been some complacency in the world of data management and ETL in the last few years. Everything really being tied to a database offering, almost always very expensive. I ask him how Enadata is trying to disrupt that model by looking at the data landscape from a different angle. You know, most, most products that you see now, they are tied to a database, but strangely, uh, most procurers of the software have no idea what that database actually is. Mm-hmm. And you certainly don't have much access to it from a layperson's perspective. Right. So, you know, here it is, you've spent, you know, arguably thousands of dollars on a piece of software that does some fantastic utilitarian function hundreds of thousands probably, yeah yeah right? yeah I, I was trying to be generous <laughs> i was trying to be generous and not be you know but yeah absolutely and yet now there's some malfunction in the system or there's some data inconsistency or whatever and you know and you have no access to the back end right you know i mean quite honestly you know and i i would i would even argue SQL as a language has become less commonly known, you know, in terms of being, it's almost like an abstract language now. So, but but at the end of the day, these hard computer science problems that have been around for like 40 and 50 years, they haven't, they haven't gone away. And so they just keep, what happens is you, the software that keeps coming out just keeps obfuscating all of the hard work that it takes to make some of this stuff happen. So, you know, having a true understanding of database method, theory, technology, whether it be relational or, you know, in this case, big table or whatever, is still, no SQL, sure. yeah, no SQL, very important, still extraordinarily important. So once again, you know, giving more insight into actually what's behind some of these systems, you know, and to be able to extract some of the data that you actually need as opposed to all of it or or certainly being able to fix some of these things without having to call in a crazy, 
expensive consultant or even even worse yet singularly focused product consultant for things yeah is i think there's just a better way to maintain your 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 data environment as an organization i like it yeah and doing things in memory yeah faster yeah faster disk More efficient. yeah you know, used to, you know used to be saying disk is cheap or or whatever have you and that was before you know you before mac started or apple started selling uh, Mac uh, laptops with Fusion drive. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, just SIDs <laughs> yeah, right. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> nobody talks in terms of 5400 or 7200 RPM disk speeds anymore. Right. So We're pretty much finished with the technical interview, but I wanted to give everyone the opportunity to get to know Oscar on a more personal level. So I just threw a question out there about his thoughts on leadership and his ideas on why a leader shouldn't be afraid to be wrong. Yeah, you know, it's kind of you know, as I as I told you, know, I may have mentioned before. You know, I didn't have a business background. I, my first company, you know, Data Tactics, was uh, was basically, you know, I want to say almost it was like my first true management job of managing people. So I right. learned some things along the way. But you know, I, I'll, I'll honestly say I always try to treat people how I wanted to be treated. You know, and I said it's very cliche and very That's simple. That's golden rule, right? But but <clears throat> it's very true. And you know, in this in this industry, and particularly at this a you know at the at this age, you know, we're we're in our mid thirties, early forties, or whatever. You know, at that time, when you by that time you've gotten to that stage of life and your career, you kind of know what your tolerances and boundaries are, what right. you what you're willing to put up with, what not. But you know, at the end of the day, we're all trying to have some stability, provide for our family, but also have some some growth and opportunity to to you know expand a little bit, whether that be personally or professionally. And I think for me, I always tried to treat people uh, in a way that did not compromise any of of anyone's specific goals, never pin anyone in a corner. If someone wants to try something new, you enable them to try something new if you have the ability to do that without compromising someone else. Um, and, And it really is truly about being a team. You know, you can't, you can't, you just can't do it all on your own. Yeah. You know, this is impossible. If I'm the person who's going in with the expectation that I have the best idea, right? Then that's probably then we're probably going down the wrong path. <laughs> we're, doomed. we're doomed. Yeah, we're doomed. I, I, you know, it should be, you know, maybe I'm setting the strategic stage of here's the end goal that we're trying to reach, and here's something to see. But I would rather just throw something out there, no matter how incorrect or wrong it is, or or how much I even believe in it and and just start a discussion. And I'm I'm a firm believer of, you know, like even in the case in this room, there's three other people in this room with collectively over 50, 60 years of technical experience. And so if we can all come to an agreement as to what we think the right route is yeah. and leverage that, then that's the direction that we should go. There's plenty of things I like about working for Oscar Wood, but one of the big ones is his belief in second chances. So I talked to him about a second chance I received early on in my career, how transformative it was for me. 
I wondered how he had arrived at and sticks to that type of management philosophy. Well, first of all, I, I've definitely been given um, second chances as, you know, in terms of when I ran data tactics, we had we had won a really big contract, mm. you know, which, as you know, as a small business and you win your first huge contract, it's like transformatively <laughs> it's a big deal. changing um you know i'm not going to say we weren't ready for it we were ready for it but even then i don't know if if uh if i knew the scope and magnitude of of what kind of impact it would have and anyway so we were running the company and we're running this project for this one particular customer, you know, wonderfully nice guy, very mild-mannered. And uh, just leave it to say, I guess the best way I can put it is we had a budget overrun. <laughs> <All right. laughs> we had a budget overrun, a collective, cumulative budget overrun for a quarter. And it was a large contract, so it wasn't... Right. You know, it wasn't an insignificant number, right? You know, um, and much like our, much like your example, our, I went and I kind of went straight into our. You're dead. Our you, feel, you feel like you're yeah. dead, right? This is it. Yeah. Death's I, door. I mean, it was disappointment. Disoriented. It was, it was yeah. you know, <laughs> like, you know, like nauseating kind of thing. And I had to go in and, you know, I was like, look, we can't hide the cost. We can fix it. But I, you know, the customer has to know my screw up and I have to honor that. Yeah. And, you know, it's not, it wasn't going to be of any, you know, a cost to the customer or anything like that. We were going to have to figure out how to make it work. But, uh, but our customer, he, he came in, he said, I, much like you said in your example, he goes, I appreciate your honesty. You know, I appreciate you coming to me. <laughs> and, and, you know, he did the virtual, put his hand on my right, shoulder. Right, and he says, right. you screwed this up. <laughs> <laughs> and from then on, I learned to to be far less CEO-ish. Right. And far more, uh, far more worried about the details, but without micromanaging the details. So mm -hmm. it became an issue of me learning not to ask 10,000 questions every day, but honing in and focusing on what questions to ask right. to, 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 you know, to get things going. But, but what that ended up propagating was people starting to anticipate what I was going to ask. Yeah. And so, so that, that never happened again. And <laughs> fortunately, you know, our customer was happy, uh, but that was a second chance. That was and that happened early on. Yeah, it happened. It happened early on. And honestly, you know, I'm glad that it happened early on. It could have been it could have been a, you know, a company really big deal, you know. Yeah. And so, you know, in hindsight, I think that kind of thing happens a little more frequently than we know. But um but I just refuse to kind of sit back and say, oh, we'll figure it out or right. work it in without without letting the customer know. So I think but, you know, at the end of the day, it was great because it garnered some respect. Uh, I think I earned his respect that day. Yeah. And and so, 
you know, it's a, it's a, certainly a characteristic and a little bit of, uh, uh, of humility that I take with each and every engagement that yeah. I have the ability to be wrong. And if I am wrong, we're going to own it and we're going to be fair and open and honest and transparent every single day with, uh, with who we're servicing. And this is a services business. Right. So, yeah. Anyway, Oscar Wood, tell me your thoughts on how close we are to the AI induced robot apocalypse. <laughs> it's right around the corner. <laughs> Self-driving car. <laughs> you know, they won't stay in the lane and I don't have a Tesla. All right, all else. right. <laughs> I get better better answers from the applied AI people I talk to. I get that's not your thing. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but you brought up Tesla, so that's fantastic. That's right. We're both fans. That's right. What a podcast. Thanks to Oscar Wood his thoughts on all things data management, and thanks to you for listening. It's always fun when Tesla pops up into the conversation and continuing the thought of AI and Tesla. Let's hope when your Model 3 does become self-aware. You've always used premium oil and detailed it once a year, so it has a good reason to keep you around. Then I've got, uh, and it's something I've wondered myself. By the way, Jerry Gay and Lori Alexander are here in the room. They refuse to participate. <laughs> <laughs> refuse. Um, but we'll, we'll get Lori there. We'll, Lori will swing around. When, when, when uh, let's put it on the books right now. Since I got my calendar open. What day are we going to record a podcast? That's right. Jerry's already done one. Jerry's done one. Jerry does them all the time. Oh, that's right. Two. June, June 30th, 2022, I'm going to throw a party. It's going to be massive. 